situations, the in-laws, the teenagers, the aging parents, you know, the partner. Okay? So, the attaching system, our friends again, hugging the monkey. It's really natural for us to be bothered by or upset about issues in the interpersonal field. And when I realized that, when I, pl- when I realized that you could generalize the Buddha's metaphor of the first and second dart to social pain and suffering, not just physical pain and suffering, which is how he talks about it, that was really useful. To realize that much social pain is inevitable and unavoidable. And there's, and there's no need to make a bad thing worse by beating yourself up for feeling bothered by that or upset by that. For example, um, a few, just only a few years ago, I was ashamed of the fact that I was still ashamed about things. What I mean by that is that I was ashamed of the fact that it still got to me if others were devaluing. Because I thought to myself, dude, you've taken in the good for 30 years. You wrote the book about it. You know, like, why does it still bother you? And I realized, of course it bothers me, just like a brick on the foot would bother my foot because we're social mammals, profoundly social, and we care profoundly about our reputation. Because caring about reputation was the basis for the evolution of altruism. Because if people don't care about reputation, uh, there's no reason for altruism. Because freeloaders will exploit altruism. And the genes that promote altruism will not be passed along. That's a really fast summary of a lot of stuff. (laughs) The takeaway is that because we lived in small bands where reputation was known, you know, if you give me a banana, how can I put it? If you give me a banana today, you're altruistic. And tomorrow when you need a banana but I don't give you one, the day after tomorrow, no one's ever going to give me a banana again. See, if my reputation is known. On the other hand, if my reputation is not known, you give me a banana today, I'll take it. And you want a banana from me tomorrow, I'm not going to give you one. I may need that banana, or my kids might. And it's no cost to me, because my reputation is not known. Do you see? The, you know, having reputation known and having it be consequential uh, was a condition for the evolution of altruism and generosity. Most animals are not at all generous. There's some very small examples, mostly based on experimental manipulation, in which you can get monkeys, even rats, to share chocolate with each other. Okay, But you have to kind of work at it. Generally speaking, my precious. Okay, you know, They want it for themselves. So it's natural that we care about our reputation. That's a first start. Something happens, someone's devaluing, they put us down, they scorn us. They disdain us. They don't tune into us. They don't care about us. It's natural for that to hurt. We don't need to make. We don't need to turn that pain into suffering by shaming ourselves for responding in that way. We want to get through the experience, okay? But we don't. But but it helps to really understand. It's natural to feel hurt in relationships, even if you're a longtime Dharma practitioner. Okay. Any questions or comments about this so far? For me, it was very helpful when I accepted the fact that I was still going to be bothered sometimes in relationships. Over time, you can train yourself uh, and fill yourself up. So, And this is really true for me. Um, You're less and less bothered by things that happen in relationships where you feel devalued. 
But um, in the moment, at least, what arises is what arises. Okay, in the back there, someone microphone, if you don't mind. Great. There we go. Hand up so we can continue to see you. Great. So you spoke earlier a little bit um, of the distinction between the male and female brain through aging. So I just want to make a question connection to women who are socialized to be very relational. Um, it's not to say that men aren't, but we're socialized that way. I think um, end up putting an excessive, from my experience, amount of energy into this sphere that you're talking about. And so I'm wondering if that any of that um, distinction across the genders, I mean, not that it doesn't affect both, but given propensity, let's put it that way, is there any additional, you know, it's one thing to sort of cognitively say it, and another thing to um, sort of what it practices to get out of that belief. Or right. Um, so I guess, you, by the way, the microphone was cutting in and out a little bit, yeah. but we'll deal with that somehow. But thank you. Um, So I'm a guy, you've probably noticed, and um, I'm thinking here about one of the great books on uh, gender issues in communicating. And by the way, I think that it really applies to gender styles, so it is relevant in many settings, including in same-sex couples. And that's Deborah Tannen's book, You Just Don't Understand, really great book. And one of the takeaways from that for me, you know, with regard to your, your questions, I'll just offer this, has to do with what do we presume? Or what do we have a felt sense of resting in already? Okay? For example, do we have a felt sense of presuming threat and resting in threat? Or do we have a felt sense fundamentally of feeling, at least in this moment, safe. Same thing with, do we have a felt sense of scarcity, deprivation, or do we have a felt sense of gratitude, gladness, fullness, enoughness, and thus contentment? See what I mean? In relationships, do we have a felt sense of separation, uh, loneliness, rejection, inadequacy, or th challenges to autonomy from others? Or do we have a felt sense of connectedness, with room to breathe. So we can be both intimate and autonomous, which is the sweet spot, to be both intimate and autonomous. And, okay, so far? So you might ask yourself, what's your resting state? What, what's your presumption? What's the background in the body? Not conceptually. I've known a lot of people who conceptually could list their achievements and accomplishments who felt deep down worthless. What, what's the presumption in the body? And so, in terms of autonomy intimacy, or to generalize with many important exceptions, a more masculine psychology, or let's say a more feminine psychology, in terms of imperatives or top-level issues or needs, classically, with many exceptions, and I appreciate your willingness for me to walk through the minefield, 
on battlefield, you know, around gender talk, you know, men tend to be socialized and what, who knows what's biology to place a very high value on autonomy. So any threat to autonomy makes autonomy the number one issue. Whereas women, again, generalizations, many exceptions, tend to be socialized toward who knows what biology is to place intimacy as a preeminent overarching value. Okay? So that any threats to intimacy move to the top of the stack in terms of what's urgent, what gets dealt with. Okay. But here's the interesting thing that, that Deborah Tannen pointed out. She said, you know, um, maybe what's true, I'll do it in this order, is that women already have a deep presumption of autonomy, a deep resting state of autonomy, so they don't get their knickers in a twist to perceive threats to autonomy so much because they just assume it. And maybe actually men rest in this felt sense of relatedness and connection so they don't you know, get so activated around seeming threats to it. See that counterintuitive switcheroo? So I think the net of it as a takeaway is to ask yourself, What's your resting state? And maybe, now I think in some ways actually, it's po- in, or in some ways in other words, maybe Tannen is right, to generalize. Maybe the truth is a lot of men are insecure about their autonomy. So they're always shoring it up. And perhaps women, who knows, might be insecure about relationships. And that actually what could be useful for a person is to really deepen and cultivate. This goes to the language I've been using around the third noble truth, you know, the green zone. Deepen and cultivate both, both. A felt sense of autonomy, relative freedom of action, being a cause, being a hammer instead of a nail in life, which is important for many reasons, including for safety needs. Because I think of helplessness and learned helplessness as a violation of safety needs in the avoiding system, in my classification system. And also to really look for those opportunities, very much as the Buddha taught, to register relatedness. So that if one is already internally free, one doesn't have to battle for autonomy so much in stupid ways. (laughs) Similarly, if one already feels very related, one doesn't get so weirded out by what's happening in relationships. One feels more rested in love and relationship and and fed by them, and is at peace with them. I guess that's what I might say. See what works for you, you know. And, and for me, uh, I had autonomy down for a long time, you know. A very stubborn, determined, you know, guy. And my weak spot for a long time was relationships. And partly too, and this, you might find this in your own journey, is that for myself, I actually discovered that I had developed such thick armor um, regarding relationships because I was a deeply empathic person and very caring. And my empathy and caring led to a lot of pain for me in my family growing up. And you may discover that you actually have great gifts in areas where you feel contracted and you're contracted 
because you're so uh, a certain way, naturally, deep down. That's a thought for you. And you also might look at what is there to develop in your life these days? You know, more engagement, more detachment, more autonomy, more intimacy. And then you try to grow those flowers in the garden of your mind. To make a point related to these three fundamental needs, you know, avoiding, approaching, attaching of those systems, you, you might ask yourself, what are you working on these days especially for your key issues? Do your key issues tend to show up more around safety, uh, fear, anger, helplessness, right? Or do your issues tend to show up more around frust- you know, the, avo- the approaching system, frustration, disappointment, loss, failure, or a sense of life being kind of bleh, right? Or, as was true for me, do, do your issues show up mainly in the connection needs that we have, the attaching system? You know, where issues like feeling um, lonely or devalued or ashamed uh, or like damaged goods for others. Uh, So depending on where your issues sit, it's helpful to look for key experiences that would really address that issue. So issues of fear, anxiety, helplessness, fear, anger, helplessness are really served by resources that pet the lizard. In other words, resource experiences that help a person relax or feel all right right now or feel protected or recognize that threats are mostly overestimated or to feel strong inside. Okay? Or perhaps your issues, like I said, are more in the approach and reward system, so it would serve you to have more experiences of gratitude or gladness or accomplishment or wholesome pleasure or a sense of the fullness of experience. Or, if your issues are more in the attaching system, hugging the monkey, here it's important to look for experiences of feeling included, or seen, or appreciated, or liked, or loved, and really internalize those. And also cultivate experiences of being loving, because love is love, going in or going out, as I said. And paradoxically, one way to heal from feeling unloved is to open increasingly to being loving. That's a kind of roadmap. Okay? So, a couple more here. I talked about feeling cared about, and uh, I really mean these five ways to feel cared about. And if you, like me, grew up with a big hole in your heart, because the normal, appropriate human supply train of being seen and understood and uh, accepted for who you were and wanted and prized for who you were. If you, like I, like me, it was a kind of a thin soup coming in, well, really look for experiences of being included or experiences of other people trying to understand you, if not actually understanding you. Right? Experiences of being appreciated. Respected. You know, someone being grateful to you. Experiences of being liked. Any port in a storm. The guys across the street from where I work, Delhi, pretty different from each other. We shoot the breeze about sports. They like me. I like them. On the zero to ten scale of liking, it's a one. All right? It counts. 
Drop by drop is the water pot filled, right? Likewise, the wise one, gathering it little by little, fills oneself with good. Okay? And especially, wow, look for experiences of being loved. Right? In all kinds of ways. Little moments of love or love from imperfect lovers. You know, um, My mom again, uh, if you've ever heard me in a workshop, you might have heard this story before. Uh, essentially that she's a very loving person who loved through improving others, as I said. That aggravated me. She also had a big personality, full of a lot of judgment, a lot of view, a lot of stuff. And after a while, I distanced from her, which hurt me as well as her. And somewhere, I'm embarrassed to say, I was probably relatively, it was 30s or 40s even, probably 30s or something, I started doing a practice where I began ignoring my mother's personality, her words, her judgments, you know, her, her surface, her persona, which I had likened to like a latticework with vines growing on it. And I started sensing through that to the love that was really there, like looking through a latticework with vines to a fire 10, 20 feet back and seeing its light and feeling its warmth. That's how I started relating to my mother's love for me. That she had, you know, that she really did love me. Or someplace deep down in her really did love me. Sometimes I had to bring a telescope (laughs) for myself. I was on my own side. I would look for or intuit or just simply presume that warm-heartedness in there. And it was kind of trippy to my mom. You know, like I turned down the soundtrack. And I like, and I just like looked through the moving lips to the love that was there, you know, <laughs> deep down in her being. And I could even feel the little, little Ricky in me, little little baby boy, you know, receiving that mother's love way down deep, you know. Even if you can't get the whole slot, whole pie, any port in a storm, you know, any slice is better than no slice at all. Taking in a slice of the pie doesn't let them off the hook for the ways they mistreated you or let you down. Also, taking in a slice of the pie doesn't fill the slot so you can't get the whole pie later with somebody else. If anything, taking in a slice of the pie cultivates qualities that serve um, the capacity to be in a soulmate kind of relationship. Yep. Okay. Questions or comments about this so far? Nightmare scenarios? Great. And someone, where are you, at the break, had a great question or comment that I'm going to come back oh, to. I yeah. don't know if I have the best question. No, no, no. Sorry. Oh, it's okay. Oh, it's because you're near the speaker. Can Maybe. I hear? Yeah, please. Oh, yeah. Uh, I have a question on <coughs> questions of abuse to where... Issues of where there's no forgiveness. Yeah. Where do you find the love in the middle? Where do you, where, how do you take the telescope and then kind of pinpoint where that love is and find a forgiveness? Yeah, thank you. Well, there's, you know, obviously there's a lot about practicing in this territory, you know, that could tell that you probably have some sense of already, and other people do too. Um, 
I recently saw a presentation by Peter Levine, Somatic Experiencing, and I think that if psychology had a Nobel Prize, he would have won it a long time ago, and, and others too. He'd probably share it with Pat Ogden and maybe Ida Rolf, I don't know, but in that territory around the body. And I think there are many layers of working through trauma, you know, the body part. Um, uh, it's such a violation of trust and safety. I think of trauma, particularly interpersonal, like child abuse, uh, as a combination. It's like a perfect storm. It violates safety. It, um, it really taints you know, something that should be and could be rewarding. Relationships, including the more sensual aspects of relationships, depending on the nature of the abuse. And, of course, it's a great betrayal in the attaching system, the connection system. So it's in the same way that love is a kind of universal medicine because it can make us feel safe, rewarded and connected, in the same way um, abusing an intimate relationship one way or another um, is also a perfect storm of badness in terms of its impact. So not, not underestimating the impact. Okay. So then to your specific question about forgiveness, um, I think there are two levels of forgiveness. And people sometimes use the word kind of glibly. I think the first level of forgiveness is I'm, I'm basically, it's bad enough you had my body. I'm not going to give you my mind as well. You know, where I'm just not going to be aggravated about you anymore because that's an affliction on me. You know the old line in AA, what is it? Resentment is like taking poison and waiting for others to die. You know, carrying this grievance around uh, is not making you, is not serving as a justice system on you. You know, it's just harming me. So I'm going to do what I can, obviously in a natural way that's authentic, to keep moving through the pain of this. But at a point where volition has any influence at all, where I actually can nudge my mind at all, I am going to nudge my mind in disentangling from, the language of entanglement, disentangling from my, my grievance, my reproach, my resentment, my grudge about this. I'm not trying to, not, to deny what happened. I'm not letting you off the hook morally. And I'm not um, trying to do a spiritual bypass or uh, too quickly move through my process here. But when I have some opportunities, I'm going to disentangle from you in my mind. See, with those caveats, I think there's a place for that. And uh, a kind of trivial story, as a metaphor, the Zen story, you may know it, these two monks, a senior monk and a junior monk, they're both male. That's relevant. They're walking on a path. They come to a river. It's all muddy and messy and disaster. There's a beautiful princess there in long silk, gorgeous robes. And the monks have serious vows of celibacy, chastity, don't look, don't think, don't touch, just don't, all right? And uh, the older monk looks at the princess and says to her, would you like me to carry you across? And she says, why, thank you, you know, venerable one. He carries her across, puts her down, she thanks him, they bow, they move on. They walk another mile or so up the trail. Meanwhile, the junior monk is seething. How could he violate his vows? How could he hold her in his arms? How could he feel her soft thighs against his wrists? How could he have 
her hair in his face? How could he smell her perfume? How could he do that? You know? And finally, the younger monk bursts out a mile or so up the trail and says, how could you do all these things, blah de blah And the senior monk looks at him and says, I put her down on the other side of the river. You've been carrying her around ever since. It's that. Are we carrying them around in our mind? Past the point that we that we're still in the first start. You know, that's the question. And and I think sometimes often people push too quickly through the first start phase. They don't honor it, partly it's painful, it's difficult, it's embarrassing to admit that we've been so affected by something. But you know what? You gotta honor the rhythm of the first start. But at some point, when there is an opportunity, then I think it's possible to increasingly disengage. And here, um, there's a story about the Buddha in the Jataka tales. Um, I can feel myself getting choked up, getting activated in a good way about this material. Um, The story's in my book. It's when the Buddha was a gorilla. In these Jataka tales, they're they're told at a time when uh, animals could talk. So the story goes that in a a forest, um, a man was a hunter, and he got lost, and he fell into a pit. And he couldn't get out. So he called and called, uh, gradually starving to death. No one came to his rescue. Finally, the Buddha, a gorilla, far away, moved by compassion, heard the cries of the hunter, and came to help. So the gorilla has now arrived at the pit, and the man doesn't know it's the Buddha. So the man says to the gorilla, Gorilla, get me out of here. The gorilla climbs down, says, Okay, man, I can get you out of this pit, I think, but first I've got to practice. I've got to get some heavy stones down into the pit and carry them out to make sure eventually I can carry your full weight and get you out of this horrible pit. Okay, So the gorilla rolls some heavy stones into the pit, carries them up and out again, great effort, pulling on the vines, scratching at the little boulders, whatever. Finally he says to the man, okay man, now I'm ready to get you out of the pit. Man says, finally. Okay, So the gorilla carries the man out of the pit, scratching, clawing, doing everything he can, gets the man out of the pit, pushes the man onto the land, with his last ounce of energy, the gorilla climbs out of the pit himself. Okay. Man says to the gorilla, thank you, gorilla. And now, can you guide me out of this forest? Get me out of here. The gorilla says, surely, man, I can do that, but first I must sleep. I must rest. I'm exhausted. So the gorilla falls asleep, takes a nap. Meanwhile, the man starts thinking. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. This is just an animal. Yeah, it got me out of the pit, but it's just a gorilla. Why don't I pick up one of these big stones, these boulders, and raise it high over my head and smash it down on the gorilla, kill him, eat him, drink his blood, fortified, get out of the forest myself. I don't want to be in debt to a gorilla. So the man lifts up this heavy stone, right, high over his head, smashes it down on the head of the gorilla. The gorilla is not killed, but stunned. Can you imagine? You're sleeping, you're exhausted, someone smashes a brick on your head. Thank you. So the gorilla sits up. Here's where it gets really interesting. The, the gorilla sits up 
and it's a big gorilla. You could take that man out just like that, pay him back, teach him a lesson, give him his due. So the gorilla looks at the man, the Buddha in the gorilla looks at the man, and the man is startled and suddenly realizes what he's done and how he's toast as far as that gorilla is concerned. The gorilla looks at him, and then tears start streaming down the gorilla's face, as the story has it. And he looks at the man with enormous compassion, shaking his head in sadness, saying, poor man, now you will never be happy. The end. What? That's how the story ends. It doesn't have Rambo or Bruce Willis or <laughs> Sigourney Weaver or the, I don't know, Alien, whatever. You know, doing the deed, just that's how it ends. And it's very moving, really, to reflect on it in many, many ways. Um, in the story, the gorilla did not give way to the red zone. The gorilla stayed green in response to the man. And second, the gorilla recognized that he did not have to be the justice system. That just being the man, hitting that golf ball in the shower, dropping a rock on the head of a Buddha, even in a gorilla suit, is lots of bad karma for a long time to come. You know, in this life and other ones. And, uh, you know, and the, the gorilla didn't have to do anything. And... Um, that's how the story ends. And I like to imagine sometimes what happened next, you know. The less than enlightened part of me wants the gorilla Buddha to guide the man to the edge of the forest and guilt trip him the whole way. <laughs> no, I try to let that go, Rick. That's the red zone, Rick. That's the red zone. <laughs> Shedding it off, okay. Anyway, long story short, it's to, you know, bad enough you did it, even worse that I let it invade my mind and remain. You know, that's where... We start shifting our relationship, and that's where I think you know, diversity work comes in, the idea of no enemy in- images, no enemy images, or what do we do with our internal oppressors? You know, we want to get them out of our head so they're not oppressing us anymore. So the first level of forgiveness, which helps us move into equanimity, of course, is to disengage from the war with them. It doesn't mean we give them a pass morally. It doesn't mean that we don't press charges eventually. You know, it depends. But we're not entangled with them. The second level of forgiveness is the classic level of forgiveness where we absolve them. We look at them and we we think about the 10,000 causes upstream that led them to do what they did. We see it in a more impersonal way. We see what happened between us and them. Um, it was a kind of blip in a larger tapestry of causes. It's as if what happened between us were like two waves bumping into each other in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. But really, those waves bumping into each other are the result of so many causes and conditions. And at a deeper level, it's just water anyway, in a deeper level. So we kind of go to that place and we, uh, we see their suffering, um, we see the way that justice may be served and for our purposes alone, if not for benevolent purposes, we say, you know, you get a pass with me. We're done on this one. We get a fresh start. We get a reset.
perhaps. And I think it's important to distinguish between those two. And sometimes people can do the first level, but the second one's just inauthentic. And it's, I think, important not to force it or falsify what's really true for you. About that. I think to to finish, you know, and and I think there are many. I think the truth is, people are not usually doing the best they can. That's kind of a trite cliche. There are moments with my kids I wasn't actually doing the best I could because I realized I could do better, you know. And in some sense, people are doing what they could because determination and you know, blah blah. But at a fundamental level, oftentimes there are people, it wasn't just a momentary slip or an aberration. It was the result of a kind of large set of patterns in them. And, um, you know, seeing the truth of that is important, I think. On the other hand, you know, I think about that profoundly powerful movie, Dead Man Walking. Two great actors, Sean Penn and um, Susan Sarandon, playing a true character, I think Sister Pregene, who said, Essentially, I'm never going to judge a man or woman for what they did on the worst day of their life. You know, that kind of thing. So there's another, there's that part too. So think about that Buddha gorilla story, you know. Um, I think about a true story of a Tibetan monk tortured and imprisoned for years by the Chinese government, distinguishing the government from the people, obviously. And he came to talk to the Dalai Lama finally after decades or something of terrible treatment. After recounting some of his stories, the Dalai Lama said, what, wasn't, was there ever a time when you feared for your life? And the response of the monk was to say, well, the only time I feared for my life was when I felt like I was losing my loving kindness for my jailers and torturers. <coughs> and in a funny way, for that monk, I'll say it my way because I'm not yet enlightened. My way of saying is, the best way for that monk to stick it to the man was to keep loving the man, in a sense. You know, you can't get to my core. You, you got my body, you can do your thing with my body, shame on you. You get to my core, shame on me. That's really right on, I think. You know, you got my body, you don't get my soul. You don't get my being. You know, you don't get to poison um, by loving kindness. And, and that's why it's important, I think, to stand up for ourselves when others have mistreated us, that they scored on us, they nailed us, they, including ways that are irrevocable and harmful. And yet, still within us is something profoundly pure, loving, and wise that no abuse or trauma can ever touch. And you're intact in that place inside. To quote the Buddha on loving kindness, you know, this famous passage, you may know it. Um, a key line here is omitting none. In other words, um, where is omitting none? Omitting none, the beginning of the second paragraph. Omitting none. May all beings be at ease, right? And, uh, one thing I do that really supports my equanimity, which is just amazing because we're so social, is cultivate compassion and kindness for others. And 
try to help it become increasingly habitual that the first response when you know encountering someone is to wish them well and to wish that they not suffer. You reserve your rights, you reserve your vote, you know what I mean? You, res- you can disagree, you can compete, what have you. You don't have to say yes to them. You don't have to give in. But you can at least wish that they not suffer and that they they be truly happy. So, Maybe another question or comment and then we'll kind of take a nice glide home. Anybody else? Great, okay. How about you? I'm sorry, I don't know if I'm out of the field, but I wanted to ask you if you could say something about um, how the the fear of rejections is an obstacle in the relationship. Oh yeah, okay, great. So she asked about how is the fear of rejection an obstacle in relationship? And here I'm going to create a little bit of a framework and link it to the idea of uh, Upandita's quote about expanding the range of experiences in which we're free. So if you think about it, if we're afraid of rejection, you know, speaking from the heart, we're afraid that we'll be ignored or put down or dismissed, let's say. Or we wish someone would love us or be more interested in us or be more erotically interested in us. Or uh, we want to join a group or apply for a position, or try to level up, you know, connect with people who are a little farther along and see if they'll include us in their group, which goes back to junior high big time, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, okay. But if we avoid expressing ourselves in an authentic, natural, wholesome way, out of fear of what might happen, that's not equanimity. That's not freedom either. We're constrained. In that case, what we're doing is we're avoiding risking the dreaded experience. The dreaded experience of what we'd feel if we were rejected or the dreaded experience of any kind. And so much of the violations of equanimity being a kind of freedom um, have to do with avoiding the dreaded experience. And the way it shows up often is very quick within a few seconds in the mind-brain system. There's some kind of natural expression of self that arises, self in the broad sense, not the ego-I sense. Um, Like we we feel something deeply, or we don't like that they did something, or we feel very loving, or we feel kind of silly and goofy, or we just have this neat idea we want to share, whatever. Something comes up, uh, or like a bid for contact. Will you connect with me? And then, in the brain, based on our history, either experienced or observed or imagined, we have an expectation that if I express my true self in this way, the smackdown will happen. The nail that stands out, goes the Japanese proverb, gets hammered down. Right. Um, So I expect pain if I speak from my heart or ask for love or am angry and assertive to male authority, for example. Just... A coincidental example, right? Um, right? So uh, then what do we do? We shut it down. We suppress, we inhibit the expression of the true self. And in that moment, that's a little red zone moment. It's a little instance of craving. We're craving inhibition. 
many kinds of craving, right? We're craving the defense, the shutdown. And in that moment, we're also not free. See that process? Natural expression of self, expectation of pain, shutdown, defense. Defense against the expression of self, which can show up in lots of ways, subtle and large, often in little jokey maneuvers, little intellectualizations, little stepping back, little picking quarrels, little changings of subjects, little shifting of body, you know. The defense, gets, the defense against true self-expression gets enacted in lots of way, ways, and it's all a violation of equanimity. What can we do about it? We can risk the dreaded experience, skillfully, by resourcing ourselves so the odds are that it'll go well, and also helping ourselves find the courage and maybe building up allies that get us to risk speaking from the heart or asking for what we want in a relationship, or saying, hey, other people need to pull their weight in the housework in this home. Or, hey boss, I'd like a raise. Or, hey, let's start a business, whatever. We get more willing to risk the dreaded experience. And when it goes well, as it usually does, really let it sink in. Take in the good, so you're then more willing to risk the dreaded experience. So around rejection, I think it's good to look for ways that one is valued and cared for by other people and internalize again and again, other people care about me, I'm okay. You know, that can help give us the courage to ask for the love that we want in an intimate relationship or to assert ourselves in the way that we want in an intimate relationship. Uh, to risk rejection. And then um, take chances. Push yourself to take chances. What's the old line? Faint heart, ne'er one, fair maiden. English is not your first language, so... Faint heart just means you're chicken, you're scared, you aren't going to do it. You're not going to get someone. It goes the other way too. One of the best experiences of my life is I pursued this woman in my 20s and I went down in flames, but I felt great. (laughs) I had totally gone for it. Aspiration without attachment. I had totally gone for it. I was proud of myself, you know, and shot me down. It's okay. It's all right. I went for it. Better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. Another cliche, but a good one. So that's what I think. And obviously, set your don't do, don't risk stupid. Don't take stupid risks. You know, I once put a staple in my hand because I wondered how it would feel. <laughs> I was young. <laughs> you don't need to do that, <laughs> or the equivalent. You know, and set yourself up to win. Uh, and then I'll just say one last thing. That just my two cents, and I think this has nothing to do with Buddhism, but I'm going to say it anyway. All right. You know, in the area of romantic love, if they don't think you're awesome, they're disqualified. They're DQ'd. Right? Because maybe they don't think you're awesome. And, you know, we don't think everybody else is awesome either. And, but you're not a, it's kind of like you're not a, they're not a qualified buyer. They don't have the money, you know. If they don't think you're awesome, when they have an, enough evidence to detect that you're awesome, you're a good person. Not a perfect person, but awesome. You're a catch. You know, if they don't think you're a catch, DQ. Hit the eject button. What's that James Bond button? Push it. Okay. That's my, that's my non-Dharma teacher two cents. All right. Okay? Good. I want to talk about not-self, finally. All right. Eddie's in the stream. So, in the last ten minutes, why not? 
we'll just do not self. So um, what I mean by that, again, we're doing levels of equanimity. And so I want to say this about, I think there are three levels to craving, three kinds of craving. The top level is the one we've mainly talked about. That's where there is a felt sense of deficit or disturbance inside. Not enough safety, not enough satisfaction, not enough connection, or some disturbance in there that has invaded the mind. And key point, we can be responsive about reactive subpersonalities or voices in our head or things that arise. We can hold them in a bigger space that's relatively peaceful and equanimous. Okay? So we might have moments where we, we are hungry or we are unsafe. I've been in wilderness settings where I was unsafe, and I've had the experience of being both red and green about them, you know, of getting really panicky and overwhelmed because I was going to die if I slipped, literally. Or I've also been in situations where I knew I was unsafe. I felt unsafe because I was unsafe. I wasn't deluded, you know. But I just, I didn't feel upset about it. I wasn't freaked out. I was, it didn't invade my core. I was solving problems. I was dealing. I was getting off the mountain. I was going to stay alive. I was going to live to see the sunrise. But I, but I wasn't um, going red about it. Okay? Okay. So that's the first level of craving. Where we, there is a sense of deficit or disturbance. The second level is what I call auto-craving, where we have this inner um, chicken little, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, be afraid. Or we have the inner ad agency that's always pitching us on the great new thing we could get. You know, want more. As the Dos Equis ad says, the most interesting man in the world, stay thirsty, my friends. It's interesting, the root of craving in Buddhism, or Pali, the language of early Buddhism, is thirst, right? Okay, So... Or we feel uneasy in relationships. That's auto-craving. I think that's really interesting to engage in practice and to look at the subtleties of it because it's a kind of delusion and to keep waking up from that delusion. I think it takes 10,000 moments, loosely, you know, 10 seconds at a time to keep de- to decondition auto-craving. Right? And then the deepest level of craving is the hardest to truly release from and truly rest entirely in the third noble truth, as it were. And that has to do with the nature of the mind-brain process in that all these 500 trillion synapses in the brain, let alone the rest of the nervous system, the fraction of them, still a large fraction, that are representing conscious experience, how in the world does the brain make distinctions or compartmentalize things? Or in the ongoing streaming of consciousness, how does the brain grab this part and go, oh, banana. It was a banana, it is a banana, it will be a banana. There's some sense of stability there. right? Well, to do that, what the brain has to do is fly against the underlying nature of things as utterly independent without any real distinctions in the 
coalitions of all these billions, if not trillions, of synapses. And so what the brain does is it essentializes very complex experiences. It takes all the data about the banana and goes banana, right? Sights, shapes, all that is, and also it's, which is dynamic, and it just goes banana, stability, thing. I know what that thing is. So there's a lot of research about how just to function, the brain has got to, and the mind has to, essentialize or reify uh, parts into a single unified enduring whole. That's kind of intellectual, but you can watch it in your own experience. And in the doing of it, especially you can see this when your mind's quite quiet, it has a subtle tension in it. Right? There's this chasing after streaming experience to stabilize it, to hold on to it, kind of recursively, to keep it around long enough to recognize what it is, even though it's gone, it's on. That's a subtle kind of craving. And in that, or related to that, again, you can watch it, there's this production of perspective that happens again and again in the mind. A perspective on, something happens, a perspective on that, a view about it, that starts feeling fairly close to I. And that sense of perspective on whatever's happening, how the day is going, the passing thought about what you'll do later when you get in the car and you head home, uh, what do you want to do tonight, what, any, any, somebody says something, I'm saying something, you can just watch this emergence of a view about it, a perspective on it. And it's really hard to stop that process short of anesthesia. Right? And even then, in dreams, there are these perspectives, right? These perspectives, and we shift perspective. And I think of that perspectival process as very innate, deeply innate, much as the essentializing nature of cognition is really innate. The production of perspective is deeply innate because it's useful to have perspectives. But the problem is, what comes with that sense of perspective is a subtle form of tension and thus suffering. It's a subtle form of craving, a holding on to a particular view, even though it's soon supplanted by a different perspective, let alone the kind of maha perspective that feels most like me, looking at these other perspectives arising in my mind. Right? What does it take to drop out of this deepest level of craving, this essentializing of the streaming of consciousness into entities, stable things, and the production of perspectives, which tend to agglomerate as the I perspective, the me, ego perspective. This is kind of, this is the deepest level I know about myself. And that's why I think the Buddha taught the necessity of nirvana, which as I, as not having gone through it, but as best I intuit it, and also as best I understand it, and I also understand it from reading you know, what the Buddha said about it and other people, that what happens somehow when people go through nirvana, which transcends experience, at least in the way that it's talked about, it's just a different level of things. So it's not even an experience of nirvana. Something happens. In that something, I think there's a kind of radical sense of 
unconditionality, the deathless, the unconditioned, the Buddha talks about it, uh, a radical sense of allness altogether, which teaches the person that all these essentializings and all these perspective producings are fundamentally non-binding. They don't get to the bottom of it all. And a person comes back from, the nirvana, from nirvana with some ongoing kind of linkage to or transparency to or openness to that level of truth or level of reality that recognizes that these essentializings and these perspective producings are uh, constructed and kind of necessary and sort of interesting and fundamentally not what's really deeply true. And I think short of that kind of radical experience, uh, it's so difficult to not get caught again and again and again in the ongoing essentializing of cognition altogether and this ongoing production of perspectives. So I offer that to you as a way of tracking where you are in your own roadmap of practice, recognizing that to your own surprise sometimes you might be at that third level, like, whoa, you know, I'm playing around with recognizing this weird tension, subtle tension of holding on to experience, of trying to turn it into a thing rather than just let it stream on. And this way of talking about it might guide you when you have an opportunity, as hopefully we all will, to you know, open out into allness. Hopefully that was helpful. Okay, so we got Dogen again, right? And I'm going to do this. So this is a beautiful, for me, it's one of the most powerful texts for Clarice about this Nibbana place, which, again, for me, on mission here, toward equanimity. How, what supports equanimity? And I'll read it. It says, For one who clings, motion exists. But for one who does not cling, there is no motion. There's no change. There's no impermanence. Where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there is no craving. Where no craving is, there is neither coming nor going. Where no coming or going is, there is neither arising nor passing away. Where neither arising nor passing away is, and again you think immediately at this point we're not in ordinary reality. Because ordinary reality is characterized in the Buddhist model and certainly in modern physics with endless arisings and passing aways. Okay, so Buddha says that which is subject to arising is also subject to passing away. So he's clearly outside the natural frame here. Where neither arising nor passing away is, there is neither this world nor a world beyond, like some kind of conventional Hindu heaven, nor a state between. The Buddha is going full radical here. This verily is the end of suffering. That's the deepest level of equanimity which we can start 
approaching and playing around with. I'll wrap up on this point. With this teaching from Bahia, who said that um, Bahia was a teacher of the Buddha's time, <coughs> and he came to the Buddha and said, please give me your teaching, sir. The Buddha resisted a few times. He was busy. wasn't the right time. But he pleaded, said, we don't know if we'll die in the next minute. I may never have this chance to get your teachings. Will you please give me your teachings? That's a dedicated practitioner, Bahia. So the Buddha turned to him, and I imagine a, the Buddha played by you know, Robert De Niro or Jack Nicholson. <laughs> you want my teachings? You can handle my teachings? All right, here's my teaching. Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In reference to the scene, there will be only the scene. In other words, we're not adding anything to it. We're not adding me, myself, and I to it. We're not adding second darts to it. There's just the scene. We're not adding craving to it. We're not trying to essentialize it. We're not trying to cling to it. Just the scene. And the same for the heard, the felt, the thought. That's the cognized. And then he says, when there really is just the scene in the scene, there's no I in that. There's no self in that narrow sense. And when there's no I in that, no sense of me, myself, and I, there's no I at all, is there? Because I is always a momentary and partial construction. And when there's no active construction of I, there's no I. And when there's no I there, when you're relating to experience in this way, you know, in, in the living in the shock absorber, there's no suffering. There is hearing, there is seeing, there is pleasant, there is unpleasant, there is heartfelt, there is neutral, but there need be no suffering. And this is really within reach of practice, to increasingly be with experience, letting it stream through, gently encouraging that which is beneficial to sink in, and letting go the whole time while loving yourself and everybody else around you. And that, in a nutshell, is equanimity. Thank you. So take care of yourself. This is doable in everyday life. Drop by drop is your own water pot filled. So take good care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.